Hey, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace. It's Imran here. How are you doing? Hope you enjoyed the last episode with Tafassal, The Power of Love. This is going to be less upbeat. This is a conversation between myself and Ilyas. No, that's not the reason it's not upbeat. We do have upbeat conversations from time to time. But actually, a lot of the time, we do cover the heavy stuff. And that's what we're doing this time around. We're talking about addiction. I've been reading a book by Dr. Gabor Mate in the realm of hungry ghosts, which covers his work over the last 30 or 40 years with severely addicted people on Skid Row at the bottom of society in Vancouver, Canada. Totally fascinating book. He happens to be somebody that Ilias speaks very highly of. And Ilias himself has done a considerable amount of work in this area. Now, when you think of the word addiction, what do you think of? I'm guessing alcohol, drugs, maybe pornography, uh, maybe a contemporary one would be social media. Those all are obvious, but then there are less obvious addictions. If I were to ask you, do you think you're addicted to anything? Do you think you're susceptible to addiction? Do you think that people who are addicted have free will? These are all really interesting questions to ask. The problem is, is that society has built up an idea around addicts and addictions, where people are essentially uh, taking the wrong choice. That's it. In the 1980s, there was the Just Say No campaign. Some of you might remember that. And it was simply a case of, look, these people are morally bankrupt, they're making the wrong choices, and they deserve to be punished. Well, you might want to hold on that idea because we're going to really dive deep into this and discuss what Dr. Gabo Mates had to say and what Elias thinks based upon his years of experience dealing with addicts and speaking about this subject. Now, every time I talk to Elias, I tell you that it's the best discussion that I've had. And actually, I'm not going to say any different this time around. It was an excellent free-flowing, back and forth. Uh, we challenged each other. Well, I challenged him on, on a couple of things. And it just, it, just made for, it just made for a great discussion. One of those where you walk away thinking, yes, I definitely have had a paradigm shift in my thinking. So anyway, that was me. You might not have the same experience. I think you will. But, uh, but let's see. If you do have any feedback, please do contact me divorcemuslimdad at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram at M-O-I-A-Z-A-M. Always love hearing from you. Just keep it constructive. Okay, this is Season 2, Episode 6, Addiction, Just Say No. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting try to kill it all away But I remember everything 
What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the air And you could have it all My empire of dirt So listen, I've been reading Gabor Mate's uh, book. I've got it here in front of me, actually. In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. I haven't completed it. I'm about, about a third of the way through, but it's been, honestly, it's been fascinating. And it's really challenged my ideas around addiction. What actually is addiction? How do you define it? Well, first, I think, you know, Dr. Gabba's book is absolutely amazing, as are a lot of his other books. And I would, you know, he's done a lot on parenting as well. I certainly, you know, would say anyone should read these books. These are amazing books. Yeah, he's, he's an amazing person. I think there's a big difference when you have someone who writes books, maybe from a theoretical perspective, and then someone who writes books from what called, you know, a practitioner perspective that's been embedded in this area of work real life experiences as well as their own personal experience i think it makes a massive difference yeah what is addiction yeah i suppose uh, you know that's a that's a big one yeah where, where do we start with it yeah and you know there's two ways of looking at it you know we actually have in as practitioners checklists to identify particular behaviors to determine whether this has gone into the realm of an, a behavior which is an addictive behavior which is very very destructive clearly to every aspect of the life of an individual, their family, their environment, that there's something that they're continually drawn to. There's an obsessive compulsive element to that. Uh, and, you know, it creates a dependency, which where, you know, if you look at 12-step programs, they talk about the fact that you have a behavior and activity which you controls you rather than you control it, where you have become excessively dependent upon this as a source of well-being, and so, therefore, you're constantly drawn back to it. And the, the, the dependencies that, you know, you have, of course, a physical dependence. Your body needs it. There's an emotional dependence and psychological dependence, which is really where most of this stuff is happening. And then there's some kind of social attachment that you have to a, a particular behavior. But, you know, so really an addiction, we would say, is a, a destructive behavior that has become controlling, compulsive, and one indication of it is that you become that we call it preoccupation. You spend, you're obsessed with this. It becomes a reference point for everything that you're doing. Of course, there is behaviors that are addictive, and then there is something where it's clear, full-blown addiction. So, you know, obviously one is a road to, to the other. And, you know, if I just give three indicators, the first one is how much time you spend on this and how much it becomes a central reference point. When something becomes increasingly a reference point throughout your life, your your daily routine, your functioning, you're spending increasing amounts of time, resource, it could be your personal money, focused on this particular aspect of work, and it becomes to the extent that you know you block everything else out, then you can say that is this is 
something which is certainly not healthy. As a result of preoccupation, what happens then is other things then start to take less importance, including a clear indicator is where family, friends, uh, you know, personal relationships, work, all of this stuff starts okay, to become... So, 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 so I'm thinking now that there, there are things that all of us do in everyday life which seem to fit that category to a lesser or a larger extent. What, what is, what's the difference between, say, an addiction and having a passion? I, I, I suppose with regards to a passion, you know, you are mo okay, the passion is motivated by a higher purpose, okay? A passion has, you could say, a ch checks and balances. A passion has something where it's a healthy behavior that is not destructive to everything around you. It's not destructive to your own personal health, let's say. It's not destructive to relationships. It's not destructive to, you know, your long-term kind of, uh, uh, you know, well-being. It's not destructive to your core value system. You know, uh, and it doesn't become a singular kind of reference point. Now, I'll give you an example. You're right. Passion. There is a thin line. There is an absolutely thin line. Someone is passionate about an area of work. They're driven, so driven and focused. They put so much mind, body and soul into that. A workaholic. That sounds like a workaholic, doesn't it? it sounds like a workaholic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and so therefore, what's the thin line between that and a workaholic? Because look, some addictions, you're absolutely right, they are socially acceptable. And somehow the guy working the, working his guts out, rat racing, workaholic, spending all his time, work, 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 is somehow, you know, through, you know, the industrialized societies is rewarded as a, as a really, you know, positive thing. But no, the thin line is this, where... This is the sole preoccupation. You risk your relationships. You are out of control because without this, your whole purpose is, has become distorted. And as a result of that, we see a whole range of negative behaviors coming. I'm concealing my behaviors. I'm lying. I'm distorting it. I've detached myself from loads of other things. If I don't do it, I have withdrawal symptoms. I literally feel anxiety and stress by not doing it. It's your escape. It's filling a void. And this is all the stuff that Dr. Gabb is saying. The fine line is this. And it ultimately comes down to what is the difference? A passion is healthy. An addiction is totally self-destructive, nihilistic, and will eventually just completely undermine a human being. The real issue uh, is it comes back to trauma. It comes back to the reason why you are doing a particular behavior. And the reason why you are somehow this behavior. And, and you know, addictions are so kind of wide. There, you know, there are so many aspects of it. You know, we always just focus on substance abuse, drugs and alcohol, but you know, there are so many manifestations of it. And, you know, exercise addiction is a classic one as well, you know, and, and really fame addiction or social media addiction is, 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 is obviously the most kind of, you could say, prevalent one at the moment. You know, well, actually, very... sorry to butt in. Uh, I know we're talking about something serious here, but a smile just crossed yeah. my lips because uh, whilst you were going through that list, uh, I did think of one that maybe you and I suffer from. Go on. Have a guess. Football. <laughs> yeah. because because what you said there about um you know it becomes it becomes destructive you know it preoccupies your mind if you don't engage in it you get withdrawal symptoms i mean i laugh yeah. about it but actually you know what 
Yeah. Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think so. You know, right? Is your let, let's go through the football addiction. Yeah, am I preoccupied with it? How much time do I spend on it? Uh, do I become? Do I when I don't have it? Do I have withdrawal symptoms? When my addiction isn't giving me fulfillment, does it create anger? negative emotions in me is it my way of escaping the world am i chasing after my addiction all the time am i lying and distorting to reinforce me is it causing a loss of control is it leading to negative behaviors is it making me violent for example is it making me abusive towards others okay does it cause my massive oscillations in my mood state if my addiction <laughs> is not fulfilling me yeah am i able to get back to an even keel you know okay do i am i oh risking God. my relationships am i risking my relationships with this am i prepared to like for example you and i have some banter yeah but would i risk my relationship for this with you yeah am i prepared to tell you to to get lost because of this yeah <laughs> we get close <laughs> look look you know what it is and this is the key thing you know i think by being aware then what it allows us to do is pull ourselves back yeah and ultimately take personal responsibility and realize okay why is this preoccupation why is this something which should be more life-affirming and something should, which should be a positive element of our life actually becoming destructive? Why? And, you know, usually it's because there are other things going on. There are other things going on which basically, you know, kind of almost create the dependency on this thing, yeah? You know, and sometimes you're right. There are other things. If I have this need for excitement, I'm isolated. I'm filling the void. You know, I'm having crap going on in my life, yeah? family problems uh you know i'm feeling down all kinds of factors and kind of push us into a space where this becomes a reference point for us and well, and I the reason always, sorry i i I'd yes, always I... say if you remember remember what i say about uh about football that it it means more when your life isn't really going yeah. in the right direction mm. but then you see there's the other thing you know when we look at the neurological science you see you know all those moments I'm not going to get this. This isn't going to be a football discussion, but all those moments are stored and actually, like almost like a photographic imprint in your amygdala. The amygdala is the kind of emotional store, it stores all of these very powerful experiences in your life. And then, you know, with the hippocampus, okay, in similar situations, you then it, it, inf it informs the prefrontal cortex, yeah which is where we have the executive functions of what we decide what to do, yeah? It's, it's, it's basically a neurological pathway in your brain that's been constructed by these experiences. And this is the thing, you're always chasing, this is the whole thing, you know, you are chasing the first hit all the time. With an addiction, and that's why they call dope, dope, because it's based on dopamine. Dopamine is obviously the neuro chemical that creates the euphoric state you know people who take use cocaine obviously that is floods the brain with dopamine pornography floods the brain with dopamine and you know the dopamine serotonin norepinephrine kind of chemical pathways you know are the chemical kind of stimulants that are taking place everything's happening in the brain and what you know what you're essentially doing is you're chasing you're chasing that uh, you know stored experience the euphoria of that stored experience and then if you're not getting it imagine it you're not getting that experience this is what creates obviously then the destructive behavior and uh, obviously if you're an arsenal fan we're not really getting that <laughs> return. 
Yeah. Hey, there's always hope. With a transfer market, there's always hope. Yeah, I'm afraid, yeah. This is why football does create despair because you've got these crystallised experiences in your brain. And, uh, you know, uh, these crystallised experiences in your brain, you can't go away. That's why it's almost, like I said, it's so programmed. It's like DNA, you know. You can't get it out of you. And you're constantly hoping that this will return back. We're, 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 we're taking it light, but it's obviously, you know, a good way of looking at it. But the reason that football doesn't go into the extreme of a really destructive behaviour is because we have what we call other reference points. These other reference points give us purpose, give us direction, give us meaning, give us significance, give us resilience. And, and we compare it to those reference points and we realise, you know what, it's just football, guys, that's it. You know, and this is what's well, well sorry, the reason the reason I mentioned football, it's, it's a, is because it's essentially not something people would typically associate with addiction. As soon as you mention addiction, everybody goes to the extreme of, you know, alcohol and drugs. Um, yeah. But there's so many other things that you potentially can become addicted to. And I think it, I think you probably heard this stat, too, that um, after, say, England, the national team loses a match domestic yeah. violence goes up absolutely what well, no fact yeah so for some people definitely an addiction it's something that is extremely destructive mm. um yeah. but you know considering what you've said there right and, and, uh, and, sorry it's imran as well it's, it's an enabler as well you see what happens is this your team doesn't do well you've got a pre-programmed response here which is domestic violence so what are you addicted to you know uh, and and you're addicted to you know, expressing your anger through violence to vulnerable people. That's the, that's the whole thing, you know. And I always say this is the, the pre-programmed response or people will then use substances to, to overcome the feelings of negativity and despair, pre-programmed response. So you're right, it kind of manifests itself. You know, one is an enabler and then the other one is the self-medication. And really, I think, you know, there are so many ways that uh, practitioners look at addiction. But I think one of the ways when I look at it in the Muslim community, ultimately, it's about childhood trauma. It's about the fact that essentially your addictive behavior and how your addiction manifests is secondary. It's actually the root cause, which is, you know, uh, like I said, trauma, trauma related. And, uh, and, you know, what's happening is that this pre-programmed response then causes you to act in a particular way. So... As Dr. Gamba says, yeah, and I think it's a brilliant point, you're not addicted to the thing that you're addicted to or whatever your, you know, poison of choice is. You're addicted to removing your pain mm. and you're self-medicating. And, and, and this is where now, when we look at the Muslim community context and relationship context as well, yeah, because this is extremely destructive. And you're right, it's not always manifesting drug and alcohol or food addiction or shopping addiction or football addiction, you know, a lot of it is about power and control, I think, sometimes in our community as well. That's also a very addictive. People want to be, uh, and this is linked to the what I call the narcissistic wound and the kind of a narcissistic uh, personality disorder as well, where the addiction is that I always have to be in control. I have to be, have power and I have to be, and this is, this, this dynamic in relationships in controlling relationships is also an addictive, self-destructive behavior. Now, this is where it gets really, I think, challenging and people are not prepared to listen. You know, I did the, 
you, you know, we did a, I did my session in Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago. You were with me, uh, and I broke down the Muslim community in the UK. Three and a half million Muslims in the UK, 67% under the age of 25. When we break that down, that's around 2.5 million under 25s. And then if you look at the statistic, which is that one in six have a diagnosable mental health problem. When we look at that one in six, 90% of those diagnosable mental health problems occur in childhood, and they occur as a result of what we call intra-family issues and trauma, and are trauma-related. That breaks down to 390,000 390, people under the age of 25 in the Muslim community at the moment who have a diagnosable mental health problem. How many of them seek help? Not even 5%. Let's call it 10%, yeah? That means there's 90% of people who seek no help for a diagnosable mental health problem. So what do they do? And this is where, you know, if they, some, some will develop some resilience because they'll have some what we call protective factors and, and, you know, they might get some help, some therapy, et cetera, et cetera. The vast majority are what we call self-medicating. And this is essentially what the addiction is. The addiction is just a way for them to remove pain associated with their trauma and then it becomes the, the the coping mechanism for them i'll give you a classic example i had a guy client client a couple of years ago and he came with his mum and that was kind of in itself quite you know telling yeah alcohol and you know he's got an alcohol problem and you know it is an alcohol problem yeah because basically you know he's more or less you know, and you know, as we know, with every drug, there's a tolerance that builds up. Yeah. So the first hit, you know, is gives you obviously a euphoric response, but then you build a tolerance. And so therefore you need more of the same to get the same effect. And that's essentially what leads to alcoholism or any kind of drug dependency or chemical chemical dependency. So, you know, we're talking about people who are getting through a liter of spirit today. And it's not touching their sides. And you can imagine what that's doing. You know you are absolutely disintegrating your liver. You know what you are doing to yourself by taking a liter of, uh, you know, spirits every day. And you are not even getting it off your head. Yet you're still continuing to do that destructive behavior. And so when I spoke to him, I said, look, you know, I'm going to do, do a deep dive here. And this is something childhood related. And his mother was there and she didn't realize. And, and she knows that this guy is self-medicating. And I said, you know, and then he starts opening about his dad man, and, and his dad and, and, and domestic violence and the abusive relationship. And I said, you know, and then, you know what happened? The, the mum shut it down and they walked out. <laughs> okay. and that, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting close to home. And guess what? The dad's a, a really successful businessman, very rich, well-known, respectable person in the community, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, they, 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 that's just, a, you know, that is something so common in, uh, in my work where, you know, the real reason is something underlying. It's It comes back down to detachment disorder and, you know, our kids having early childhood trauma experiences that are never dealt with. You see, what happens in this, you see, as an adult, if you have a trauma, again, that same thing, it's stored in the amygdala. The amygdala is the emotional center of the brain, yeah? It's stored there, not as a, uh, uh, you know, it's stored there like a, you know, the amygdala is amazing how it works. It basically creates like a photographic image of how all five of your senses 
responded to that trauma, you know, taste, smell, touch, sight, hearing, all of that, yeah? And, and so therefore you have this, every trauma, which is a shocking experience in your life where you are obviously in a state of, you know, when it's emotional turmoil and despair, you know, is stored in that amygdala. Now there's a golden hour where you can reframe it. So you can, when you have then protective factors provided, you reframe that. And, and then it's re, it can be reframed in a positive way or, you know, it can be, the negative impact can be, can be minimized, yeah? There's a really amazing video of a child who was going across as a refugee on his horrific journey across the sea. And, you know, he lands in Lesbos and you can imagine, you know, a two or three-year-old child seeing all this helicopters and people and everything. It's horrific. Seeing people drown is horrific. It's in the amygdala of that child now. And then, you know, this group of psychologists who are working in, on Lesbos, yeah, what they do is that when they see children like this and they're, they're in this state of catatonic, you know, shock, they wrap them up in a, obviously a reflective blanket and then they just provide comfort, love and support. And they say, look, we are, you're, you know, you're a hero. We, we've, you know, you've come here and we love you and we welcome you. And it just reframes the whole thing for a child. But if you don't reframe it, it stays there. And then what it happens is repeated, 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 and this is the post-traumatic kind of kind of element to it. And then in similar situations, yeah, you, you create an automatic response, and that's where it affects what we call prefrontal cortex. Yeah, that's the, the the center which is within what we call executive function. That's deciding how to act, the decisions that you make. Now, if there is, a, you know, obviously a a highway, a super neurological super highway from a traumatic negative experience in your amygdala that is causing your hippocampus to release the adrenaline and create that stress response. And then your brain is processing it. And it, we call it executive function because it can process it in a good way or a negative way, but then your whole experience is negative. That's what we call trauma. And that's what we call this trying, trying to simplify kind of uh, what that pathway is. And that's what people are using to self-medicate. All of the behaviors we're seeing, you know, list everything, including football addiction, shopping addiction, workaholics, people who have violent tendencies. They're addicted to violence and using violence as a way to feel more positive about themselves. Self-destructive behaviors, self-harm, suicidal ideation, uh, you know, just personal neglect is another form of kind of self-destructive addictive. You just, you just completely have no care for yourself. And eating disorders are a part of that. You know, I have a client at the moment. And, uh, you know, he knows he's destroying himself through the eating, 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 eating. You know, the guy's weight's just ballooning, ballooning, ballooning. He knows what he's doing, but, you know, he continues to do it because his executive function doesn't allow him to switch to, to see it from another point of view. And, uh, you know, this kind of, I don't I know, I, you know, it's one of my clients and, you know, he's not breaching any confidentiality, but, you know, I'm doing a couple session with them and his wife was obviously trying to said look how can i stop him having the eating disorder and i said look the first thing he's got to take personal responsibility he's got to realize it is an addiction stop being in denial and, and secondly he's got to realize what the root cause is and thirdly then you've got to obviously eliminate all the triggers yeah and uh, you know one of the interesting things about him she says that she comes into the car and she finds there's pakoras in the car <laughs> he, oh, sne he sneaks oh, the into the car yeah oh dear shouldn't laugh shouldn't laugh <laughs> We had a laugh. We, no, no, we had a laugh about it. We had a laugh about it because it was kind of like, because she said she doesn't laugh. So, you know, he's got Pecoras in pockets, yeah. Got, some okay. so, some so people you, like you know, little, you know there's something wrong, but then what I didn't say is that 
what I said to him is, okay, you know, he's he's going to the shop and he's buying some pakoras, yeah. At least he's not sneaking some pakoras from some other woman, yeah. <laughs> you know, she did a clock on him. Maybe there's another woman that's buying you pakoras. <laughs> No, I mean, like, and it's funny because, you know, normally you associate people hiding little, you know, little bottles of, uh, you know, whiskey or spirits, you know, in these places. So the pakora just completely threw me off. And, and that is, again, on the checklist of addiction, yeah? If you have a behavior that you're lying about and you're concealing from other people, and therefore you are losing your value base, you're actually deceiving, concealing, you're secretive, you don't want people to know about it, then it's clearly not a healthy behavior, you know, and that's the, that's the key thing here. It's not a healthy behavior. So that, that you know, it's clear in this case. Yeah. Now eating disorder is a, a common one in our community, because obviously if you've got people who are more religiously minded, they're not going to take substances. Yeah. Okay. And they think, Oh, eating, eating is not a big deal. You know, obviously the eating raises the serotonin levels, makes you feel good about yourself. And then you just constantly want to chase that feeling of positivity. And I, uh, always give this example of how you know i deal with this uh you know kind of like food dependency and how kind of like i suppose i kind of overcome this kind of uh overindulgence yeah you know you know pizza is a really lovely food everyone loves pizza and you know great food of mine when you see that pizza before the pizza has even come you've got an automatic response you're salivating you know even if you just think about it now you're salivating about your favorite mm. pizza you know, I am actually. I am. Yeah, there you go, man. So the pleasure is all happening in the brain. It's all there, you know, and and there's nothing more pleasurable than the first bite. As soon as you have that first bite, it is euphoric. You know, you have everything coming together and you you know, that first bite just gives you so much satisfaction. And then it starts diminishing every bite thereafter. Hmm you through your first slice and there's nothing going to be more pleasurable than your first slice and then you go on to the second one and you realize it's not as good and so basically what you're doing is it's a bit like what we call gambler's fallacy the gambler's fallacy is that eventually i'm going to win so you're chasing now and you're chasing the same pleasure that you got from the first bite which is impossible because as i said there is going to be a downgrade you know and uh, you know and then you take the third and the fourth yeah because and, and you need more of the same to give you the pleasure of the first bite but nothing will do it nothing will do it except that that first bite is the one that gives you the most pleasure now resilience is essentially this one slice is enough i tell myself and even one bite is enough and even sometimes mm -hmm. me looking at it and smelling it is enough i'm going to mm -hmm. say nothing is more pleasurable than this point now people are like, oh god this is no pleasure in life yeah well you know it depends on what your motivations are yeah and how much strength that you have to kind of show resilience here nothing is better than the first bite so just take the first bite or the first slice and say that is enough now if you can do that that's resilience that's control that shows that you are controlling it rather than it controlling you and this is at the core of it when i'm when all of the the therapy that i do around addiction i can tell there are two types of people you know, people who will be able to overcome their addictions and then people who will constantly cycle between, you know, uh, kind of uh, abstinence, relapse, and, you know, constantly cycle up and down, up and down, up and down, and never really overcome it or will just manifest it into another addiction. And really it comes down to what I call the four connections. The first one and the most important one, and this is what is actually used in 12 Steps programs, it recognizes that, you know, in 12 Steps, you have to recognize that there is a power higher than me. 
you know, I've, you know, and this is what he actually says, you know, I believe in a power greater than myself to restore my sanity. And what I've done is I've allowed this addiction to gain power over me so that my life has become, you know, unmanageable. And I'm going to regain my power by having a higher purpose, an existential purpose. And it comes back to executive function in the brain as well. I'm telling my brain that when it's switching between choosing a negative or a positive response, what should overwhelm is, and, and you could say from an Islamic point of view, Allah says in the Quran, this is about addiction. You know, there are those people who take for, for take objects of love as they love Allah. Okay. But those of faith are overflowing. Are overflowing in their love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wow. So Allah you've taken this drug and you give it a love that you give should be giving to Allah in your executive function when it comes to choosing the two paths. You are choosing this. But if you have a greater love, a greater connection, and a greater, you know, like I said, recognition of, of the purpose of Allah in your life, the executive function easily switches back to, to that. This is another indicator of that ultimately addiction from an Islamic point of view is the executive function of choosing Allah and the love of Allah over the love of your addiction and the purpose of your addiction and why you're doing your addiction. That's the, the key thing. And this is why every one of us at some point in our lives can say we're at literally at that juncture, at that crossroads. And sometimes we've chosen the negative addictive behavior over Allah. We have. Let's be honest. Let's be mm. absolutely. And then sometimes we switch back. You know, that's our process of, of Toba and, you know, so, you know, it's really important to recognize that, you know, higher purpose and having higher purpose and meaning in your life is one of the key ways that you then can abstain from a particular behavior or moderate that behavior and control that behavior. But then when I pe find people who just don't have purpose, don't, or it's just something really superficial and shallow, don't have meaning don't have anything in, in their life yet, then you, I'm just going to see them cycling up and down, up and down, good days, bad days, you know, abstinence and then relapse, abstinence and relapse, because nothing, you know, even, you know, you could say, I, I, I had a case of a cocaine and GHB addict, and I'm with him, I'm literally with him, trying to withhold him. And look, this guy had lost everything at this point. You know, his family had walked out on him and, uh, you know, he was at a real low point. You know, I think he'd lost his job because of everything, just constantly chasing the habit, chasing the habit. And it's Ramadan as well. Remember this, it's Ramadan and I'm with him in the house and I'm just kind of like, just, you know, being there with him just to kind of stop him from, you know, kind of like, uh, and, uh, you know, take, take any drugs, just help him go a bit cold turkey yeah, and just kind of get through, you know, the day. And uh, he'd hidden some GHB which is liquid ecstasy uh, in the toilet system, okay, in the toilet. And it was because GHB is in these bottles, like, you know, you know, kind of seven up bottles. It's just a clear liquid, yeah. Mm -hmm. He said, I've got to go to the toilet. I've got to, after about a couple of hours, come to the toilet, go to the toilet, went to the toilet, took his fix, came back, obviously, you know, GHB off his head and then just zonked out. And, you know, this guy had done, everything lost his family lost uh, you know his job you know down and out in debt uh in ramadan and yet still you know in terms of you know his choice it was he had to choose this this is the only thing that he had in his life yeah 
And it, so therefore, you're right, completely becomes self-destructive. Now, what? so the, the big question is, how do we, can we tell someone who's going to have an addiction? You know, there's so many theories around it. Well, just before, um, just, before yeah. just before you do that, so would I be right in summarizing that um, you are more susceptible to addiction if you are, you are in pain and essentially rooted, in, most likely rooted in some kind of childhood trauma? And, and then there's a second factor as well. And if you haven't had what we call protective factors, you know, if you haven't had someone who's helped you to deal with that and rechannel that or do, you know, because obviously it's left its, uh, you know, indelible, in, it's indelible kind of uh, mark in your brain. But then someone helps you process that in a kind of positive way and channels you in a positive way. So you're right. It's, right and so, this is, so, so, so essentially the trauma, you know, uh, creates this indelible mark, you know, that, that's, that creates pain in your life and unless you have protective factors around you you're going to carry that with you and therefore you are more likely to want to seek out ways in which to uh, medicate against that and essentially that can be through different forms of addiction and once you're addicted you kind of your only way out of that really is through your executive function right your ability to to act in a way that is opposed to the addiction and if you don't have that, then you're, you're likely simply to cycle through and continue with your addictive behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, putting it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if we put it even more simply, yeah, you know, this root cause of this pain that you hold and this hole in your life has never, ever been dealt with. And you look for ways to fill it. And then, you know, those things become the things which are, you know, giving you your temporary uh, release and you're, you know, relieving the pain temporarily. But as the song goes, you know, and the drugs don't work, there comes a point when your drugs don't work, nothing works. So you have to then up the ante, increase the intensity of the intense, uh, the, uh, the <clears throat> addiction or other addictions then come into to play just to fill the void, fill the hole. And, uh, you know, and you, and until you come to a point where you understand, accept the root cause, and then you completely rewire your brain, reboot your brain, you know, porn addiction is one of the big ones that I deal with. You know, I have so many clients around that. Till you accept the root cause, it's not porn that you're interested in. You're look, you're 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 using porn as a, as a way to deal with loads of other things that are going on in your life. And when you have something more meaningful, something more powerful, something which has a greater pull in your life, then you will never really overcome that. And the reason why these things are more acute in our community is because we cover stuff up. We never open up about things that we're going. We're told we have to, we can't talk about haram stuff that, that we're, we're dealing with, yeah? We lead double lives. We're very, very sophisticated in covering up the double life. No one knows stuff that we're going through. This is very, very different from other communities where there's perhaps more of an openness to talk about it. And, you know, this is why I say one of the biggest risks of going into a marriage and a relationship in our community is that you haven't, done the psychological profiling you haven't looked unresolved undiagnosed kind of trauma issues within that individual both males and females that might manifest obviously in in the relationship sense it's not always a deal breaker if you know stuff then you can obviously be the protective factors to to kind of to, to kind of overcome it yeah you know and uh you know there are 
it's not, and it's not always immediately evident that this is an addictive behavior, but it's very evident that this is what we call a self-destructive kind of behavior. Yeah. So that's why our community has bigger issues around this because we never deal with it. You know, you mentioned earlier, um, you mentioned the expression personal responsibility. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's one of the things I've been thinking about whilst reading uh, Gabo Mate's book. Um, and essentially, as you, know, as, you know, as a clinician who is experienced, who works with, you know, severely addicted people in, in Vancouver, Mm-hmm. You know, he is, he's clearly a very compassionate man. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there, you know, he's very honest and he says there are moments when he becomes judgmental, but ultimately that's simply him becoming frustrated with the situation. But, but when he's thinking clearly, he, he clearly thinks that a lot of the time, you know, the, the people that he's dealing with, you know, they're not as blameworthy as people associate <clears throat> with people who are addicted you know, society, mm. you know, really does uh, look down on the people of the typical kind of addictions, right? Whether it's porn or whether it's alcohol or drugs. When you see people who are addicted, you associate 100% responsibility to them. So I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm not sure here, you know, how blameworthy, how responsible are people? Because people have had different life experiences, which has put them in a particular situation. You know, it's so easy to be judgmental because you could say, oh, I have the same and yet I didn't do this. Yeah. And I do hear that a lot. Well, if you have the same and you didn't do it, there was actually something very different. There was something protective in your life that actually channeled you into a, you know, into a positive direction. And, you know, I I talk about my own experience when I was 14 and being in a really dark place and, you know, having an amazing, compassionate, loving, caring teacher who just helped me to channel my anger into something creative, into art, and not into something self-destructive, yeah? So there was that challenge, that really powerful experience at that point, which helped me, yeah? You know, other people don't have that. And, you know, what, you're absolutely right. You know, we completely, you know, this, this has been kind of socially constructed and also constructed by media, this idea of junkies, the idea of addiction, these people who are just weak, you know, somehow, you know, you know, we should not give them sympathy. We'll just feed them even more if we give them sim- sympathy. Yeah. And look, I suppose what Dr. Gamba's saying, and I would, you know, as anyone, as anyone who's an experienced practitioner in the field, this is judgment gets us nowhere. Really, honestly, judgment and moral condemnation and going around going haram police, it gets us nowhere. I always well, say the war, I never... the war the war on drugs is essentially the judgment, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, the global yeah, yeah. war on drugs actually it's now it's now clear, evidence based, it has not worked. Whereas other places, for example, Portugal, mm. who had like a huge drug problem in the last ten years, I think, they took a public health approach to it and massively reduced um, uh, yeah, the number of absolutely. addicts and actually treated them as human beings with, with, with actual health problems rather yeah. than some kind of moral deficiency. Absolutely. And we know that the evidence is clear around, you know, where you take it as a public health issue and you underlie the, you address the underlying root causes and you provide mental health support. And, you know, in the prison system, you know, the prison system, unfortunately, is just ram packed with people who have underlying mental health trauma issues that they are, 
seeking self-medication for through their dysfunctional kind of addictions and, and behaviors. And we don't take a public health approach. We take a criminal justice approach, a moral condemnation approach. You know, the war on terror is actually part of Reaganomics. Yeah. You know, Ronald Reagan, former U.S. president and Nancy Reagan, you know, started the whole you thing. You mean war on drugs. He said war on yeah, terror. Yeah, it all starts, and she's, you know, Nancy Reagan started the Just Say No abstinence campaign. And there are obviously two models there's harm reduction and there's abstinence. Yeah. I'm, we're not gonna, I'm not going to get into the details of which one works and which one doesn't work. Yeah. But whichever approach does work, you know, certainly if it's, if it's gonna, coming from a perspective of moral condemnation and, you know, uh, you're looking at it as a war where you are fighting against people who are enemies, yeah, it's not going to not work. And what does work is compassion. Absolutely. You, you know, I don't approve of people's actions, you know, if they are negative, destructive and abusive actions. I never approve. And I said, I don't condone your actions in any way, but I need to understand why. So I do humanize. I want to humanize you. And I have compassion for you to understand why this occurs to help you break your cycle and also to help other people. So that's the key point here. To get to the root cause, does it in no way diminish, let's say if someone has been abusive or someone has been violent or someone has been, you know, harmed others through their addiction, you know, part of 12 steps is also making reparations, obviously, at some point. Now, that's why, you know, 12 steps is not perfect, but I think there's a lot of real kind of, you know, positive elements to it. And, uh, you know, but the core thing is, yes, compassion humanizing is that wonderful statement of terence who goes i am human and there is nothing of that which is human which is alien to me human beings do stuff for the most human of reasons and it's just to remove pain that's all it is yeah and so you know dr gabri saying all of these people that he was working with in toronto in the ghettos there where there was endemic problems were just people who were just so damaged and when you when you list the damage, you know, and, and and I only say this not to be in any way gratuitous or in any way alarmist. Yeah, you know, I had a case of a, a client trafficked, sold, the the uh, as a child, you know, and we've had all this stuff around Mo Farah being trafficked as a child, you know, and so now people think, oh my God, this is this is awful. It's happening every day, you know, trafficked, sold as a child to a woman who would beat her and force her to eat. She would then vomit the food because she didn't like it. She was made to eat that vomit off the floor. Oh, then, then, then the step, so-called stepfather sexually abused her. Come on, man. This is horrific stuff, yeah? Oh, these are not. And, and, and so, therefore, when an individual like this, I know it's horrific, isn't it, that? Gosh, and I've had worse stuff than that. Okay. You know, how's that individual going to cope? And when they tell their story, people just dismiss their story in our community or just minimize their story because they don't want to deal with the complexity of that story and the support the individual needs. They minimize the story. They go from, you know, pillar to post, crying for help, pleading for help, and no one helps. And the only thing that helps to take away pain is sometimes, you know, an addictive behavior. You know, so really all of us as a community, you know, we need to be addiction aware, trauma aware, and we need to sometimes, you know, hang our heads in a bit of shame here that there are so many people who have cried out for help to us, but we've been so absorbed in our own image that we don't do anything. And this is why I always use example. This is what we call the narcissistic 
wound. And it starts in childhood and it's a rejection and it's, uh, you know, detachment and it's not having your pain dealt with in childhood. You see, the story of Narcissus is no one really explains it. Everyone talks about narcissism and the fact that he loved himself. Yeah, but no one explains the story of Narcissus. It's a very important metaphor for our time. And I use it in my therapeutic work. See, there are two, well, quite a few characters in the whole story, but there are two interesting central characters. One's called Echo, and that's where the term Echo comes from. And then one's called, obviously, Narcissus. Yeah, and then there's uh, Narcissus's uh, enemy, yeah? Okay, Nemesis. Okay. And uh, so Echo was a nymph, wood nymph. She loved Narcissus. She adored Narcissus. She would run after him everywhere, just trying to get his attention. And she was, she talked too much. So she was cursed with all that she could say is repeat the same word that you said. So when, you know, she would express her love to him, Narcissus was so in love with himself, he just ignored her, ignored her anyway. It's an important me metaphor. We as individuals and institutions in society, we ignore the cries of those who want to, who have what we call unrequited love. They want to be loved by us. They want to be accepted by us. They want to be embraced. They're crying, crying. And the therapist's role, and I think what I call a truly empathetic therapist, is a magnet for people in distress. You see people's pain and you embrace people's pain and you comfort them through pain we don't do that and we are so not we because we see in our own image all the time of status of position of honor of izzat of respectability of religiosity and all that these are our images and then we see people who don't who cry out to us and unless they want to become a muslim or something like that you know and uh and, they, and so Narcissus rejected Echo, and then she just dies, and all that remains is her voice echoing through the forest. That's where the term Echo comes from. Narcissus is so in love with himself and his own image. So Nemesis, who's his, who's his enemy, yeah, that's where Nemesis comes from, this term, tells Narcissus, there is a person who you can love, and he takes him to a pool. And Narcissus looks at his own image in the pool, and he falls in love with him, his own self. And every time he tries to, to grab it, Obviously, the ripples of the water cause it to disappear. And so he's just so absorbed in his own self to the extent that he keeps on gazing at his own image, this selfie culture, this self-obsessed culture that we have there. And then he gets elderly, still chasing his own image and love of his own image. And then Nemesis just then, and, and, and as he's old, elderly in age or older, he pushes him into the pool and he drowns in his own image. So the, the metaphor of our time is this, that all of these children in our community, we fail. It's 390,000 currently in our community at the moment who have a mental health problem, who are crying out, screaming out, but they're not moving their lips. You don't hear the scream. It's an internal scream. Help me, love me, care for me. This is every week. This is my clients. You know, I just had a kid yesterday. I'm not going to get into the details of it, you know, and the same thing. Why... Am I able to just love unconditional positive regard? You know, I'm here to help. I'm here to support. I care about you. That's it. Let's just open up. No judgment, no labeling, nothing, you know, and understand our cultural lived reality so I can help you never navigate the space. 
You know, there are so many kids crying out, but we are so narcissistic as our, our institutions, our leaders, our frameworks, our cultural paradigms are so stuck in our own image of what should be perfect and that none of them conform to that. And so they feel totally rejected and they don't get the love and their love is unrequited and we are just drowning in our own image. So that sums up, I think, what I feel is why we have addiction in our community. You know, what are the long, why, what, what are the what are the long term implications? Do you think? Well, the long term implications is that when you have such a large group of people with unresolved issues, uh, and then these are being compounded and re-traumatized, and you know the the inflammation in their brains uh, through the trauma is never being dealt with yet, then this just progresses into adulthood with you know, more mental health problems. And we just have cross-generational transference of this. It just comes from one generation to another. And I'm, I look, everywhere I go in our community, I see this, this cross-generational transference of all these issues. It's just going from one community to another community to another community. I did a piece of research last year on suicide prevention, you know, and, uh, and I was also interviewing people from the Sikh community and our brothers and sisters and friends in the Sikh community. And again, this is not any stigmatizing there is an alcohol, people in the Sikh community recognize, there is an alcohol problem in our community. You know, the, the Sikh friends who I interviewed, they told me that we don't know a single family in the Sikh community where an individual hasn't died as a result of alcohol. And there was a point that one of my respondents said, he said it brilliantly, you know, people would rather die than tell the secrets that they have. And the way they kill themselves is with alcohol. And the way they self-medicate, socially acceptable within a community, <clears throat> is through alcohol. And this is a self-destructive behavior that reduces life expectancy to, to cover up pain. You know, And uh, in our communities, in our Muslim communities, in our different you know, cultural Muslim communities, they, everyone has their go-to poison of choice, I'm afraid, where... This is just covering up the stuff which, uh, you know, is too painful. We'd rather die than actually talk about it. So until we actually start dealing with this stuff, there are more and more, look, the nature of the, the way that, you know, so many entities now create that dopamine high, give you a fix, give you a sense of well-being. There's so many manifestations of how behavior becomes addictive. Now, as I said, we haven't even touched on it. Social media, massive. Children's self-esteem, so predicated on likes on social media. Every time there's a, they get a like on social media, it gives them a puff of dopamine in their brain, which then reinforces that behavior, and then it becomes an addictive pathway. And it becomes more, you know, more at risk of an addictive pathway. As I said, if you have those underlying vulnerabilities, you know, so so what is, what's happening in our community? It's only getting worse. That's it. I'm not just being alarmist here. I'm not just, it's only getting worse. <clears throat> I remember when I used to do my Need for Weed workshop with kids, yeah. This young kid, he was brilliant, you know. And we're talking about, you know, Need for Weed goes through every type of addiction. You know, shisha, it goes through gut in Somali uh, communities. It goes through gambling addiction and fixed odd betting terminals. It goes through, you know, eating disorders, it goes through caffeine drinks, boost and Red Bull and all this kind of stuff. It goes through coffee addiction. You know, we go through everything, yeah? 
And then one of the kids, brilliant kid, he said, Uncle, Uncle, you've missed one. I go, what is it? Money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone wants the, the, the wonga, mate. Everyone's addicted to money, man. And he said, fame, fortune, status, money. You're right. You know, so I, I think, you know, we're not having the conversation. Look, we're not having a conversation. Addiction is a, is, a, is a real source of shame in our community. It indicates personal failure and also family failure. That's often the mothers take the brunt of that. You know, oh, you mother, you're a failure that your child is like this, that, and that. And so there's so much moral condemnation that therefore, as a result of that, the behavior becomes even more secretive and hidden and, you know, and, you know, we never ever deal with it and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Pornography one is a, is, is a really interesting one because I remember did my porn addiction videos about 10 years ago and they had, you know, over a couple of hundred thousand hits, maybe a half a million hits or something like that. And, you know, and as a result of that, I had countless individuals with pornography addiction who contacted me, uh, tried to work with them. And it's just one of those addictions. We don't talk about it secretive hidden behavior people are most people are, are so whenever someone calls me up and admits it to me i said you are someone you're a person of courage you know done the most important first thing which is that i have a problem and i want to deal with it and otherwise pleased with you as a result of this yeah because it takes enormous courage to actually courage to admit i have an addiction i have a problem i have allowed this thing to control me and it, I don't control it. And the reason is because it fills my void and it fills a hole and it just makes me feel, you know, something when I don't feel anything at all. And sometimes it's a difference between life and death, you know, subhanAllah, you know. So we're stacking up. We're really stacking up these challenging issues. And when it comes to relationships, you know, uh, I, I know people think, oh, do we have to now do some vetting or some, you know, kind of, you know, profiling of this? Well, I think so. Why not? Why not look at, you know, any disposition towards addictive personality traits or underlying issues which may cause addictive behaviours, you know? Now, that's the kind of conversation I love having. One which really challenges conventional thinking and moves you forward. Essentially, it's an opportunity for personal growth, but you've got to be open to it. You've got to be open to information coming in the other direction. A lot of us, sometimes we have conversations where they're really just monologues, people just imparting their own ideas on each other without really listening, but that's not going to get us anywhere. We've got to be humble enough to say there's something to learn here, and that's what I hope that we get from these episodes, the opportunity to to personally grow and live our best selves. I'm now off on a short break. I'm off to Amsterdam, which is a city I love. I'm going to stay on a uh, organic dairy farm and uh, cycle around, eat great food and indulge in a bit of arts and culture, inshallah. If you've never been, I can highly, highly recommend it for a short break. That doesn't mean that the next episode is going to be delayed, but it is on its way got some got some great guests lined up so why not take the opportunity to share this episode with one or two people you think might want to might want to hear it or might want to hear future episodes as well that would be appreciated uh, you can contact me with any comments suggestions feedback 
or if you actually want to take part at divorcemuslimdad at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram at M-O-I-A-Z-A-M. Just DM me there. Thanks for listening. See you next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.